Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi, I'm Victoria Reese, partner at Hydric and Struggles and the global managing partner of the general counsel practice and the head of the corporate officers practice. In today's podcast, I'm talking to James Ford. James is Senior Vice President and Group General Counsel at GSK, based in London. James has been with GSK for over 20 years in legal roles in the U.S., Singapore, and the U.K. James started off his career at Clifford Chance and DLA Piper. James, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Throughout your career, you've held multiple divisional general counsel roles and now a group general counsel role. How would you describe the function's evolution? And how have the internal and external stakeholder relationships changed over the years? So that's a great question, Victoria. I took my first divisional GC role about 16 years ago, and the world was very different then. The things have evolved enormously. And if I think about the various roles that I've had and where I am now, I would summarize it in two parts, really. The first one is an overall modernization process, which you'd expect to happen. And that is both a function of technology, which I guess 15 years ago was there to some degree, but legal departments weren't really investing in it. And now it's very much table stakes. The law departments put money into the best databases, contract management, it could be IP management, but it's part of what we do. And we have a roadmap within our function as to where the investments go. But also things like peer-to-peer benchmarking has become extremely important sometimes very annoying as well, where you you know that every couple of years you're going to be measured against, it could be McKinsey, it could be the Boston Consulting Group or various other benchmarking measures. And whether you like those measures or not, there are a standard against which general counsels are held. And it's kind of a, a signal of aggressiveness or our ability to evolve as businesses change. So that's the first big change, and that obviously is here to stay. The second change and it includes the whole stakeholder management piece, is around expectations of the role itself. And if I think back probably more than 16 years ago, the legal departments, both in the UK and the US where I worked in that stage, were a little less proactive than they are now, and certainly less strategic because prioritization wasn't as, I suppose, heavily scrutinized as it is today, and I'll come on to that. But these days, we have very much moved along what I would term the value chain. So in the past where we may have done everything, there could have been a bit of a concierge white glove type of service. These days, a lot of what used to be done really didn't add a ton of value. Those things have been weeded out of the system and either they just don't get done or self-service kicks in. So moving along with the value chain has required quite rigorous prioritization. It's required a real understanding of what matters, so focus, both from me and my leadership team, but right through the organization as well. And I would say that the final part of the evolution is a very clear expectation on, at least at senior levels, having strong external networks. I don't just mean the law firms you work with, but it could be with regulators. You know, I regularly meet with various regulators around the world 
or whatever the agenda you're trying to shape happens to be. You need to be part of it. You need to influence it. And overall, I would say it's more professional. It is more demanding and probably a little less relaxed than it used to be. But shaping the agenda is big part of being a GC these days. Speaking of global networks, you have held roles in the U.S., U.K., Singapore, and Hong Kong. How has having global experience helped in your career? Any specific skill sets or experiences learned that you apply in your role today? Yeah, so I think having global experience, if you're in a multinational environment, is essential. You only have to look at the composition of most C-suites to see that numerous people typically have lived in multiple markets during the course of their career. It's also huge fun and it's hugely enriching compared with perhaps sitting in one office for 20 years in the same location. One of the main differences, at least in my experience, has been that working for a multinational versus a law firm has provided me with the opportunity of both traveling to most parts of the world, but also living in various parts of the world as well. And that is something that is an invaluable experience. It really, for me, it started as a very young lawyer in the late 80s, where I went to Hong Kong for six months. And I wasn't particularly worldly wise, but it literally, in the course of six months, changed my perception of what was available to me in the world and just shaped my global ambitions and my interest of different cultures. And following that over the years, I spent just over 12 years in the US, over two stints, including taking the New York bar, which is a real pay to do in your 40s, which I did. But from a development perspective, professional development perspective, having strong US operational, transactional, and possibly litigation experience, I think carries enormous weight for any aspiring general counsel. But in the case of the pharmaceutical industry, where the issues we face are very complicated, often high stakes, I think the chances of advancing to the more senior levels within a legal function, without doubt, increased if you have credible, strong US experience. For most of us, it's our largest, most profitable market. And certainly in my world, it is bizarrely enough also our highest risk market because of the US tort system. But it's also a market with incredible ecosystem of innovation, probably unparalleled ecosystem of innovation. So deal experience and being able to build relationships, all kinds of professionals, whether it's banks or accountants, other types of deal makers is a really important skill set as you grow in these sorts of things. That's helped me enormously. And then before I became general counsel, I moved to Singapore for three years. And that was a bit of a shock for my three teenage kids at the time, but very, very unique regional experience. It happened to coincide with the Chinese government investigating GSK's commercial practices at the time, swiftly followed by the DOJ. The former resulted in a criminal prosecution and fine and the latter a declination. To get to those points, it was an absolute cultural roller coaster involving local nuances, but also heavy duty FCPA experience, privilege experience, the sort of things that in some ways you see on TV. And it was quite extraordinary. Again, opened my eyes to different approaches and different styles. So I would say it's had a, a huge and profound impact actually on my career. I look at the people I've worked with who many of whom had a similar path to me. I think what it gives you is a deep appreciation of diversity, appreciation of different styles within the same profession. And it's very easy, I think, if you have a myopic view to assume that all the great lawyers sit in the US or the UK, and that is not the case. Many of my lawyers in India and China, for example, are just as smart, just as well-trained, and just as valuable as my lawyers in the US and UK. They're just different. And that difference is 
a valuable lesson for any aspiring general counsel coming through. I think we could do a separate podcast on how to take the New York bar when you're 40. So <laughs> that's not a happy experience. But that takes courage and discipline for sure. We release an annual survey of healthcare and life sciences executives from around the world on leading through disruption. An interesting point from the report was that 85% of the respondents think their leaders have been successful in managing their organizations through the pandemic, that their leaders manage the crisis well, and that enhanced their reputation companies gained as the consequence of their response to the pandemic and will become a competitive advantage. I can imagine that in a global pharma business like GSK, there is significant complexity for a general counsel to manage in a pandemic setting. What are the lessons learned? Well, there's a lot of lessons learned. And I think my first comment is I'm not surprised, actually, that 85% of the respondents believe their leaders were successful in managing that crisis. And when you think about it, the people that lead these complex organizations have had years of growing up very much with an agile and or business continuity type of mindset. Clearly, the pandemic was at the outer extremes of all of that, but it played well into the skill sets of the types of leaders that you see across the life sciences industry. Now, from a general counsel's perspective, and I guess at its most granular, the types of issues we faced transactionally were team connectivity, like everybody else, things like ensuring that statutory or court deadlines were met. And at its most basic, it was working out who would go and open up the mail in many jurisdictions around the world where court orders or court deadlines can arrive in mail rather than email form. So it's simple and very practical plans that my teams around the world had to put into place quite quickly. And also remote negotiations as well. And all of these things were thought through. All of these things had plans that were put into place, as you would expect. So the normal service would continue as best as we could. But the important learnings from it, I would say there were several. The first one is performance with care. And what I mean by that is care and empathy with your team are always important. But in a crisis like the pandemic, where you realize that you don't have that proximity of relationship, you don't have the, the physical connection with people in the same room, that empathy, that strength of relationship is really, really important at a human level, an authentic level. Often at a time when people are anxious, they can be scared, people react in different ways from a mental health perspective, and sometimes, unfortunately, confront personal tragedy. And I saw that with some of the people in my own department. I think another key learning has been that going 100% virtual is suboptimum in a law firm and certainly a law department type of environment. And hybrid's okay. We've proven that hybrid is okay. But it's, and this is still a work in progress, very important to explain to our teams that coming together for the moments that really matter as a department or as a team will make a significant difference to the quality of the output, also to the fulfillment of many of the individuals as well. Now, we call it performance for choice at GSK. It is not an easy thing to navigate, but we are well along that pathway. And then I would say the final thing is organizations are enormously resilient. And those that have a clear trust and purpose that sits intrinsically in their culture, I believe would have fared better. And it was very clear to all of us that the great resignation was a real thing. And we lost a few people who reappraised the way they wanted to live their lives. Actually, very few. Some did. I know of other industries and companies where more people decided to try a new uh, approach in their lives. But having that trust and purpose 
It's the glue that will hold organizations together. And in some bizarre way, I think defining our new normal is even more difficult than navigating the risks that we faced at the start of the pandemic. Because people's thought patterns, the tectonic thought plates, if you like, have completely changed. Employers' expectations are changing. Employees' expectations may not be changing back at the same rate. So it has been enormously complicated. I don't think we are steady state by a long stretch, but we are constantly course correcting our communication and our approach on this. I love the performance with care. I think that's very important. Switching to another topic, how do you see the evolution of the compliance function? And how do you think it can sit successfully with the general counsel function? So the compliance function is, is a relatively new function. If I think back 15 years, I think GSK had one compliance person in the organization. I'm not really sure what that individual did. These days, we are on the compliance side, very professional. We have people that chose compliance as their first career option. They're coming in with different types of specialism. So they have data analysts, we have control specialists, we have writers. It is a very, very different setup from where it was even probably five years ago. So it has a strong professional basis to it. I would also say that it's over time has probably gone past where the legal function is in terms of its use of tech. So the really progressive compliance functions are heavily tech enabled. They employ people who are data analysts primarily, not in the old days where you used to often finish your legal career as a compliance officer. So those days are absolutely over. And risk management is measured and benchmarked in the same way as you would expect a good law department to be as well. They are very different functions. They are also complementary in how they look at often the same problem, but from a different angle. So quite holistic risk management, if you like. And if I look at my own experience, I've been both a compliance officer and obviously a lawyer all the way through. You know, now I have the compliance function reporting into me at GSK. And we run it as a separate department, separate division. Very important to do that, that it retains its own skill sets, its own microculture, if you like, and feels equally as valued as the legal teams feel as well. And I've seen huge benefits in having both legal and the compliance streams under my leadership as one umbrella. And the benefits you see are things like, and the obvious things like less duplication, a more holistic approach. I think many of our lawyers can learn a lot from how the analytical process works on risk management. And I think many of our compliance officers learn a lot from the approach taken by our legal team. But there's fundamentally very different roles. And in a couple of cases, we have teams where I've got both compliance and legal on the same team, different roles. Privacy and ABAC are prime examples of that. But I think it works. It's something that I was never 100% on until the last couple of years. But if you look at the outside world, I would say increasingly compliance is falling under the umbrella of the general counsel, but is being held as a separate professional organization in its own right. Now, most regulators five years ago didn't really love the idea. And that was in a world where there were more consent decrees, there were more corporate integrity agreements, which kept them very, very separate. These days, if you don't have those types of constraints and you have adequate resourcing and a proper line of independent communication, if you like, from the compliance officer through to the CEO or to the chairman of the audit and risk committee, I think it works extremely well. And I, th I think it's the future. I was on your website and saw a statement that stood out to me. 
quote, we want to be a diverse, inclusive organization that attracts and retains outstanding talent because this brings greater opportunity to create better health outcomes for the patients around the world who rely on our medicines and vaccines, close quote. And GSK has once again been recognized as a best place to work. That's fantastic. Can you share how you work to advance the DEI agenda in your GC role? I think like most big companies, DEI is very much a central part of culture within most organizations. And it certainly features very large in the DNA of our legal compliance group globally, not just in the US or the UK. It's well known that, again, like many of our peers, we have published gender and ethnic diversity aspirational targets as one example both for the group of companies, but also for the legal and compliance function as well. And in fact, our C-suite, including myself, are bonus in part on the progress that we make towards those aspirational targets. As you would expect in a global enterprise, we've got many, many different constituent groups of people and therefore support many different types of employee resource groups. And it could be gender groups, it could be women's leadership, ethnicity, disability, or LGBTQ plus around the world. At a company-wide level, there's a significant platform for these voices to be heard. On a corporate-wide level, I co-chair the group's Global Ethnicity Council. At a functional level, the expectations from the legal and compliance teams are extremely high. This is something where both myself and my leadership team play a very active part. We invest a lot of our personal energy and time into pursuing the goals that are set by the group, but also the goals that are worked from the ground up across my organization. And I would summarize it really as there's four key work streams, and there's more than four, but there's four key ones. These four work streams are led by a full-time DE&I manager who we appointed last year who's doing a phenomenal job. And the first one would be as basic as growing a diverse talent pipeline. And that is where we have a cross-functional group across the legal and compliance groups and the representing a number of different markets, focusing on things like outreach, focusing on things like establishing a running internship program. So for example, in Philadelphia every year, we have two or three diverse law students coming through, the same in Durham, in North Carolina. And we're moving to a new program where the idea is that after a period of a couple of years of internships, we'll offer at least one intern a full-time role with the company. At the same time as building real outreach, in the communities in which we operate as well. So that's one stream. The second stream is, I guess, putting a bit of pressure on our law firms and other third-party providers. So it's third-party diversity. We are committed to doubling our spend with the NAMWL firms. And those are firms that are part of an association that is effectively run by women or minority law firm partners. And we're committed to doubling our spend. We are increasing the number of engagements to do that. We're spending real time at various conferences to support the purpose of NAMWOLF and other similar organizations. We're also doing things on a practical level on larger scale transactions or litigation, such as when we ask our firms to go into a reverse auction process, we are now shifting the weighting of their diversity initiatives to 15% of our decision. And clearly, if they do nothing, that's a real negative in a world where pricing sometimes isn't always the differentiator. So that is putting real pressure in the system. And I can see already quite tangible changes in the approaches by our law firms, both in London and in the US as well. 
And then we're looking at increasing minority representation at senior levels. And this is GSK group-wide, but it applies equally within my own department as well. And that requires real discipline over things like ensuring diverse slate of candidates, making sure that we are walking the talk with our various teams, and that when we work with the outside recruiters, we're very clear that we don't want to see a slate of candidates unless there's credible diversity that sits within it. And then the final, and these are all big bucket work streams, Victoria, but the final one would be around fostering an inclusive culture. And that could be providing our teams with the tools that they need for recruiting or developing people, practical training, guidance, education, if you like, but also things like diverse reverse mentoring, which we're very big on within the legal and compliance function. Those are big bucket areas internally, but externally really matters too. And what I've learned over the last few years is that our internal teams are very proud of the external DE&I face that the company wears. And therefore, the company has to wear it with conviction and put his money where his mouth is. So, for example, I, I'll just draw two examples from my own area. We as a, a legal and compliance function, we're part of the European General Council's DNI initiative. Covers a lot of things, including outside counsel, evaluations, and all that kind of stuff. But also, we're part of the US Leadership Council on Legal Diversity, where I've, along with many of my peers, have published quite a detailed general counsel's pledge that covers both personal and organizational commitments, which are visible to my entire function, which we measure, we track. And I like to, at the end of every quarter or every year, depending on what we're working on, with total transparency, show my function in various broadcasts that we do, the initiatives we're taking, the progress we're making. This has to be a real tangible authentic way forward. It cannot be lip service at any point. And we certainly do not pay any lip service to this at all. And I think having this commitment from both me and my teams is resulting and continue to result in a very healthy and vibrant community across the legal and compliance function. And I think it's something that is, it's an expectation. It is part of what we do. So those are examples of the types of things that both my team and myself are actually involved in. And we fully support very thoughtful, very strategic, and certainly a commitment. I can hear it. James, one final question. Sure. Looking ahead, which specific leadership skill sets and capabilities will be most important for your company to meet its strategic goals in the future? So I could give you a very long list, Victoria, of... <laughs> Look I'll try and keep it concise. I would say, I mean, some things that have never changed. So Clear, compelling communication and vision is always important for a leader. But I think these days, agility, the ability to pivot in situations and the ability to read trends early and move with them is vital. That's all well and good. You have to have that, but you also need to have followership. And I was chatting to one of my senior leaders today who one day would like my role and they may well get it. But ultimately, if you're going to compete at the highest of levels as a GC. You need to have a lot of skill sets, but you also need to have people that want to follow you. And that followership is based on authenticity and trust, good judgment. So some things you can't always train, but that's a really important part of leadership. And then I would say the final thing, and I've probably learned this over 30 years in my career, resilience continues to be vital. Resilience in the form of there's going to be bumps in the roads. These are tough complicated jobs. It's good to be glass half full, 
but you do need to have a healthy dose of realism and positivity as well to really galvanize teams around you. But those are the sort of core areas that I'm often drawn to when people ask me a similar question. Fantastic. Well, we will end on that glass half full spirit. And James, thank you for making the time today to speak with us. Very, very much appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Victoria. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.